Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Rami Muhammad, a host on the New Books Network, and today I'm talking to Dr. Leanne Trapedo-Sims about her new book, Reckoning with Restorative Justice, a Why Women's Prison Writing. Dr. Leanne is the Daniel J. Logan Assistant Professor of Peace and Justice at Knox College, and her work focuses on the intersections of gender, indigeneity, violence, and state power in the colonized land of Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Dr. Leanne. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much, Ramin, for that wonderful introduction, and I'm delighted to be speaking to you today. Yes, I'm also very excited. And with that, I'll just ask, Can you tell us a bit of what your book is about? Yes, absolutely. So my book is what I call a feminist ethnography, site-specific feminist ethnography that took place at WCCC, that's the acronym for Women's Correctional Community Center on the island of Oahu in Honolulu. Um, I spent between 2012 to 2016 participating in the Kailua Prison Writing Project, which was comprised of the writing classes, the creative writing classes that met at the facility uh, twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays afternoon. And its um, counterpart, its public counterpart called the Prison Monologues, where the women who were in the creative writing uh, classes were chosen to go out into the community. And they went to schools, high schools, middle schools, colleges and universities across the state, and then later even out of state to Maui and the island of Hawaii. And they were extremely powerful and moving uh, presentations or theater. We can talk a little bit about that. But I followed this writing program, the KPWP, for about four years. And it also, one other element of that was that it also included the prison journal that came out twice a year. Um, It was called which in native Hawaiian means transformation, which speaks a little bit about the director, Pat Clow's vision for the program as sort of one that was both about transformation and redemption. 
the book also traces and focuses a lot about the over-representation of Native Hawaiian, Kanaka Maoli, that's the Hawaiian word for Native Hawaiian, or Kanaka or Ivi, which literally means people of the bones, the over-representation of Native Hawaiians in the carceral state in Hawaii, very similar to the over-incarceration of Black and Brown communities in the U.S. mainland. Native Hawaiians make up about 20% of the state's population, and they comprise for women about 44% of the prison population who are Native Hawaiian and about 39% of men who are Native Hawaiian. And many scholars and activists even say that those numbers are underestimated due to the vagaries of self-declaration. Like, you know, some people in Hawaii might not identify as being completely Native Hawaiian, but they might be Japanese Hawaiian, Chinese Hawaiian, Samoan Hawaiian. So that's really what the book is about. It, it, it's, um, it traces the over-incarceration of indigeneity in the state, but also globally. Now, I think you summarized that like perfectly. And since we were kind of talking about race and gender, um, I know in the book, you talk about prison as being a gendered space and the racial dynamics um, between the inside women. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And firstly, I just like, since you use the language of inside, and I just wanted to say why I use the language of inside women or inside community, I don't like to use language that's sort of really about stigmatization and reduction. So words like felon, um, you know, even saying incarcerated, uh, prisoner, convict. Those words are really served to reduce the person to perhaps one of the worst things they've done in their lives. And sometimes they haven't even done them because there are many innocent people in prison. So I like to use the language of inside out and also indebted to the training that I did in the Walls to Bridges program in Kitchener, Ontario in 2015, which is the Canadian counterpart to the US Inside Out Prison Exchange program. And I've also done work and have been trained by Lori Pompa, who began Inside Out at Temple University in the 90s. Um, so back to your wonderful question. Um, I see prison as a gendered space because although women really make up the minority of the prison population in the US, they are actually the fastest growing population to enter prison today. But unfortunately, women really receive um, a negligent amount or a dearth of resources, funding for prison programming. Um, they really are neglected, I would say, in the prison industrial complex. Um, one thing that I also thought that was quite interesting now that I've also had a chance to do teaching um, in a male facility is that it was much more obvious to me, at least at Women's Correctional Community Center, that many women um, would receive um, psychotropic medicines very readily. So some of the women who I interviewed, and I interviewed many women one-on-one, -on -one, told me, for example, they couldn't have access to medication for diabetes or for their thyroids or for the cardiac but psychotropic meds were pushed onto them. So when I first began arriving to the prison and I would wait at the main gate to get across the yard to go to the education classrooms, there was always a really long line of women waiting for the psychotropic meds. So in my research and also just what I came to my own understanding from interviewing the women, that psychotropic meds for anxiety and depression are used much more hev heavily in women's facilities and I think this is sort of a gendered notion of keeping women passive and docile because there is sort of a, 
misunderstanding of women being more difficult than men, even after have spoken to various uh, correctional wardens, like people will sort of propagate those ideas that women tend to fight more, they're more emotional. So these very sort of gendered stereotypes about women from the inside. Um, in terms of race, um, you know, I think the way that people envision or understand race is quite different in Hawaii. And I think this is what I'm just writing for my book. I cannot make assumptions about like all the prisons in Hawaii, but um, some of the women told me that the Samoan women were favored by the gods because most of the gods in the prison were Samoan. And they said, you know, everybody's somebody's auntie here. So that was something that they spoke a little bit about and sometimes would joke about that in the class as well. I've seen this in classes too here, like with the men in the prison that I'm teaching right now, that um, the women were particularly um, supportive of each other in the classes. So I can't speak about for the whole prison culture, but in the actual classroom, I really saw that the class, it was kind of like what I came to see as a sacred community. community. I know that sounds quite utopic, but the women were very supportive. So say, for example, I'll give you an example. A woman was sick and she couldn't come to class and people were sharing their poetry that day. The woman would make sure that a peer or another woman that she knew would bring her poem to class so that her voice could be heard. And when people did present their poetry in general, everybody was like very supportive. They would just say things like, go girl, or they would, you know, just be very loving and supportive of each other's writing. So that's what I saw in the creative writing classes. No, that's a really great insight and actually kind of bleeds into my next question. Uh, one thing I kind of see throughout the book is that there's kind of a continuing thread of paradoxes, you know, yes. self-expression and surveillance, traumas of the carceral system and healing practices throughout the book. Can you talk about like your experiences um, and how that kind of shaped the prose for this project? Okay, that's a really interesting question. And so when you say the prose for the project, do you mean like the writing style or just what I wrote? Can you just go a little further with your question there? Maybe say one, two more sentences. Sure. So kind of, I guess the way it's written. Um, so the way I see it is that, um, you know, kind of like you were talking about like this utopian like sense of like community, but we're also like within, you know, like, you know, a correctional facility where, you know, these women are also being surveillance highly, but these classes are promoting self-expression. Really more your experiences um, kind of balancing between those two, like between those paradoxes. Mm, okay. So, you know, one thing early on when I started to work with Pat Gluff, she did say to me, and we had very different teaching styles. So I first began by watching her teach. And my first chapter is on pedagogy and process about her pedagogy. Um, mm -hmm. I had differences in the way that I sort of envisioned or practiced pedagogy. But she did say to me something that I never forgot. She said, I never forget where I am. And it took me a little while to sort of see the repercussions of that. Because I remember when I first, she asked me one time, and I hadn't taught in a prison before, but she said, you know, I'm going to be sick this day. Do you think you could come in and teach for me? And I was a little, little bit nervous, but of course, you know, I wanted to do it. This is before I started teaching my own class. And I remember the first day I went over by like three minutes, right? Because a woman was telling me at the end of class a really 
horrible story that had happened to her about her own personal life. And I didn't want to interrupt her because the class ended at exactly, you know, a specific moment. And so I, I talked to her for like really just a couple minutes. And then I got really, you know, screamed at by a guard that said to me, you know, uh, you know, this is a prison, this is a correctional facility, you're never to go over. So things like that, when I realized that the prison finds ways to have you not be completely human. And this is something too that I'm experiencing a lot at the male facility that I'm teaching now at mm -hmm. Illinois, that the space itself is so harsh, right? And toxic that it's impossible to not forget where you are. And, and, and also, as I was talking to you about the sacred community of writers, I remember one day we were having a wonderful discussion and one of the women, I think it was Kelly, presented this beautiful poem in stillness. And, um, you know, sometimes there was like a tears in some of the women's eyes because the poem was really just so profound about, I think, her children. And at that very moment, while we were having this moment of sort of healing and witnessing and sharing, um, a huge guard across uh, the path, the window of, of our classroom door. And he was dragging a woman in an orange jumpsuit you know, that, and, and she had uh, belly chains and chains around her leg. And he was literally like, almost like hurting her as if she was an animal across the window uh, of the classroom. And both visually and viscerally and even orally, like to hear those clanking of the chains, it really did interrupt or infect or inflect the sanctity or the sacred space of our writing community. So there were many moments like that one other very unusual moment when, when there was a restorative justice circle that was happening in the prison where a judge was invited in um, and he was a judge that sentenced some of the women, a colleague and friend of mine, Lauren Walker, who's an attorney and also restorative justice practitioner was leading this um, circle in the prison. And at the same time, we were also having a good time. People were laughing, people were talking to the judge. We were sharing, sitting and around in a circle we could hear the voice of a guard that was disciplining a woman. He was just yelling in, in very sort of hostile, aggressive ways. And that again, intruded this restorative justice circle that we were having in the prison. So frequently, you know, or moments when we were having, you know, a really good discussion, women were sharing writing and then the blaring loudspeaker would say, you know, call the woman out to a head count in the yard. There was another moment of intrusion. You could never understand, understand this loudspeaker. It was always sort of, I think, purposefully incomprehensible, right? And women were called out to the yard to have these head counts, and then they would appear back in the class and we would go on. So there were a lot of instances um, around that. Um, oh, and one other instance was once, I used to take the bus to the prison because I didn't drive. And I remember one time I actually was going to an awards ceremony from the um, AAUW, the women's, uh, I'd won like a local award and I had mm -hmm. to go to the ceremony right after teaching and the guard wouldn't let me leave the prison. Like I remember standing there by the gate waiting to get out and he was sitting across from me. He had his legs spread, you know, putting popcorn in his mouth and he saw me standing there and he just made me wait for like 45 minutes and there was nothing I could do, you know, and I remember thinking, I don't think I could last a day inside, like the many, many moments of brutality and, you know, demeaning and interrogation and um, harassment. Like I, I just 
felt like I could never survive that. I was furious, but there was nothing I could do. Um, so, yeah. Right, of course, that must have been a very just frustrating experience, um, not only for yourself, but also working with the women inside. And I do want to touch a little bit on humanity um, because of course, like you're saying, the experiences inside, um, you know, the correctional facilities, um, you know, there's definitely a dearth of lack of humanity. But I know also in the book, you touch on the prison monologues and the inside women forming at high schools. So I want to touch on around chapter four in Love Letters, you cite that the performances at the high schools are different than those uh, mentioned in chapter two, home. Those, the ones in chapter two being the readings and performances within the writing group. Can yes. you elaborate a bit more on the contrast of these two different types of performances sharing between a writing group versus an outside audience like a high school? Okay, yeah, that's a good question too. So one thing is Pat never really believed that any of these things were about performance. Like she did reject the notion of performativity. My background is in, you know, performance studies and, and clearly I felt like that the the sort of performances or presentations that the women did at the school were more about performance because some of these presentations were in large auditoriums, right? Like I went to one at a particular high school and there were about 250 people in the audience. Sometimes I went to something at the ACLU, they were probably close to 800 people at the conference. So these to me seemed more performative. The, the chapter two that you're mentioning about the home and homeland, this was a prompt that um, Pat Clough used to get um, the women to think a little bit about their relationships with home and homeland. Obviously, homeland is very um, confounded or layered when we're talking about Native Hawaiian women, right, who mm -hmm. are sort of doubly occupied both in the prison space, which is a sort of colonized space, but also within the larger landscape of Hawaii as a colonized space. Um, so those were more... Um, creative writing about home and homeland. It was published in the Hula Here journals, but the women would read their work for the peers. And that I came to see as less about performance. But in the Love Letters chapter that um, followed um, the chapter on um, the prison monologues performances at the high schools and at large conferences, um, the Love Letters was sort of participatory dialogic between high school students and the women. So the women would go out and perform in high schools and they had a particular relationship with two Title I high schools on the west side of Hawaii, uh, Nanakuli High School and Kapolei High School. Um, both of these high schools um, were schools that did not have resources. So in Hawaii, it's also very much um, just like on the mainland, there's schools that have a lot of money, like schools, you know, like Punahou and the school where the former President Barack Obama went, and then other schools which have populations or community are primarily Native Hawaiian students without resources, very few books, um, not much funding. And so the high school students at Nanakuli and Kapolei came from very similar locations, physical locations, um, as the women. So there was a lot of sort of um, interesting dynamics that occurred where the high school students, this is what I came to see from the performance, would choose certain of the women as what I came to be called their sort of 
performative families. So some of the students had lost their mothers to drugs, to the streets, and a lot of the women had abandoned their own children for the similar reasons, right? And mm -hmm. there was like this really beautiful um, sort of adopting of each other across uh, biological families where both the women and the, and the teenagers became sort of surrogate families for each other. So it, it, it was a very unique um, type of performance. And I came to see the performative nature of that, the actual fact this was done in community um, was an impetus for what I came to see it's this sort of remarkable healing. Um, they were very powerful. It's kind of very difficult to explain really what happened. I mean, I saw about 20 performances um, and they never lost their purchase to move me. Like, so even though that was sort of scripted um, and I could hear sort of the same stories um, over and over, no two performances were the same. And that mm -hmm. was primarily because of the audience, the way the audience interacted or informed um, these performances. No, that is that is great. Um, and that's very insightful as well. And one thing, since you're talking about dynamic between the women inside and the outside world, um, you know, before you zoom out and you talk about the criminal legal system, one thing I find very interesting is that you actually talk about your personal experiences uh, towards the end of chapter five. Can you tell us a little bit about this methodology, about why you chose to weave in your experiences with the inside women at that time? Yeah, this is something that I've thought about a lot. I mean, I think, you know, initially I really wanted to do something a lot more creative because I am a creative writer and I write poetry. I kind of wanted to embroider my own voice, sort of a creative voice more throughout the story. But then I began to also feel like this could be overstepping, intruding. I didn't want to intrude into the women's experiences. Obviously, the stories that they told me through watching the classes, through watching the prison monologues, um, I felt like very honored and gifted that I was actually sort of accepted into this classroom space. It's a very vulnerable, raw space, right? And so I didn't feel like perhaps it was the most appropriate to talk about like my own trauma, my own stories. But I did, because the woman gifted their trust to me and their stories, and I think I write about this, that I came to love the woman, definitely. And, you know, also there needs to be boundaries in, in doing this type of work because it's a very sort of precarious, sort of fragile uh, relationship. And also not to mention that one can never really do totally, completely feminist ethnography in a prison, right? I'm free. I, I realize that like every day I could leave. I could hear those clanking of the doors behind me the women couldn't leave I mean some of them did leave eventually but there definitely was a power dynamic and that was something that I definitely had to interrogate and think about not to mention the fact that I too was not Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander and needed to sort of also address my own you know privileged positionality as a white person that was not born in Hawaii um so um, but when I did go back to Hawaii at the very last chapter, there was something very personal that happened to me at that time. And that was my father, who I was very, very close to died of COVID. I didn't get to say goodbye to my father. And, um, I thought a lot about exile and trauma and I have my own sort of trauma. We all do, but, but 
but I was just dealing with something very particular at that time. And that was the grieving of my father. I didn't get to grieve. And that was one of probably the hardest things that I've seen in terms of teaching inside are the inside community that sometimes never get to say goodbye when they lose their families and their loved ones on the outside. I think that probably is like one of the hardest and the worst things. Like one of the women, Pam, who wrote this beautiful poem called Beyond Grief, who'd really wanted to honor her grandmother and she'd put in, you know, to try to get to the funeral and that could never happen. I've seen it too with the men that I work with now. When people lose folks, their loved ones, their families, and never get to say goodbye. So this was something not to like compare these experiences, but um, I did think about this a lot when I was unable to say goodbye to my father and, you know, went to his funeral on Zoom. Um, so I just felt like to honor him and to honor the gifting of stories that the woman gave me, I felt like I wanted to write a little bit about that. Of course. And um I want to say, like, you know, thank you for sharing such an, you know, an intimate portion of your life, uh, not only within the work, but also within this interview as well. I very much appreciate that. And I have one last question for you. Um, so I know you're talking about um, a project you're working on right now. What is something next that, you know, we can expect from you for your next project? Okay, <laughs> thanks for that question. Well, I am very excited because I'm on sabbatical now. And I am really grateful to be going back to Hawaii. Uh, I haven't been since 2019. So what, that's uh, four years. And I'm going particularly to go to the Justice Summit. There's a big Justice Summit that Lauren Walker, the woman that I told you about before at UH Manoa in the Richardson Law School is um, coordinating. And they are going to be scholars and activists from all over the world, um, from New Zealand, from Aotearoa, from, you know, just all over South Africa. There's some scholars coming from there. Um, Dorothy Roberts is going to be the keynote. And, and the whole symposium is focused on Indigenous restorative justice methodologies. Mm -hmm. I will be going and I will be actually presenting or um, collaborating on a panel with uh, a native Hawaiian uh, Ukrainian artist, um, Abigail Romanchak, who actually, her design is on the cover of my book. She works with endangered bird species. She lives in Maui. And then some other people from the mainland who um, work, I think, in Seattle and yoga behind bars um, and sort of decolonial approaches. It's led by um, uh, the Black community that has been mostly harmed by the prison industrial complex. So I'm very excited to be presenting with these folks at the panel. And then after that, I am be going to Hilo um, on the island of Hawaii to work with Ohana Hoapakele, which is a restorative justice pods as an alternative to mass incarceration. And I'm going to be working with the community there. So that's what I'll be doing for the next two months. And then, you know, hopefully I would love to do some writing around this. And another thing that I'm very involved with and actually very excited about is that um, I am at the beginnings of um, launching what will hopefully be a bachelor's uh, degree program between Knox College and the very nearby proximate prison, Henry Hill Correctional Facility, which is literally five minutes away from our liberal arts college. I took some students into the prison. We did a class together on life writing last spring. Um, 
And that was a very transformative experience, I think, both for our outside students and the inside students. But I will continue that work. I now have more faculty that will be teaching at the facility. And that is my ultimate hope and dream to have the bachelor's degree program running um, and, um, and an inside out program as well. That is amazing and fantastic and very, very exciting. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And that is all the time we have for today. Um, Dr. Leanne, I really enjoyed our conversation and our dialogue and you sharing your intellect and experiences um, with this book. So thank you, thank you so much for joining us. All right, and thank you so much, Romaine, for your interest um, in my work.